Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're pushing pause for just a couple weeks on our series on location to take a look with some more depth at Palm Sunday and the resurrection next week at Easter Sunday. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tierra as she brings us a message on Palm Sunday. So this morning, we are taking a pause from our latest micro-series, um, I believe it's called On Location, I believe, uh, <laughs> and we are basically trudging through. Those micro-series are kind of our attempt to mark time as we move through the entire Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you've been around for a while, I'm, I'm guessing most of you have been around for the last several months, you know that we've been moving through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the story of Jesus' life, uh, as told by the least likely disciple, Matthew, and we finally after literally several months moving through the Gospel of Matthew, got a chance to meet Matthew last week. And Matthew, as we meet him, is a tax collector sitting in a tax booth um, collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire that is currently occupying um, Judea, Jerusalem, God's people's land. Um, And he is taking taxes from God's people to give to Rome. He's considered a traitor. Um, And last week, we watched Jesus walk right up to him in his tax booth Um, right up to him and call him to follow him. And Matthew does. He leaves everything behind and he follows Jesus. Um, As Matthew tells his story, um, it's really beautiful to read in the Greek because as he tells his story, he says that Jesus literally raises him from the dead. Uh, He uses the same word to describe Jesus' call of him into mission with him um, as he uses to describe what Jesus does on the third day, that it raises him up to life, which is absolutely breathtaking, that he was just waiting on that invitation, waiting on that phone call to be called into something bigger than himself. And so last week, Reverend Tim very eloquently introduced us to Matthew um, and a number of other things that Jesus did. Um, And so this week, we're taking a pause from the book of Matthew um, because it is Holy Week. It's Holy Week. And during Holy Week, we take a look at the final days of Jesus' life Um, the final days and the final moments of Jesus' earthly life. Um, And so we mark Holy Week in a number of different ways. Um, On Thursday, uh, for those of you who have not heard about this yet, we are hosting our Maundy Thursday service, but because no one knows what Maundy means anymore, we're calling it Holy Thursday. Uh, So our Holy Thursday service on Thursday at 6 o'clock p.m. here uh, at South Harbor. Uh, And we'll take a look at Jesus' final meal with his disciples. And then today, today is Palm Sunday, And on Palm Sunday, we take a look at the Jesus' triumphal entrance into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, This is a story that some of you have heard before. Uh, Maybe it's a new story for some of you who have not um, read the story before, but it comes up in all four of our Gospels. uh, And there's a lot going on in this story. There's a lot of layers in this story. There's a lot of history in this story, some of which we'll get into today. Uh, And parts of it might feel odd and peculiar uh, to us because there's a lot kind of coming together. There's a lot clashing together in this story. And yet... And yet, even as odd and peculiar as the story might feel to us in 2022 in America, as odd as that story might feel, it's also at its core a story about hopes and prayers and expectations. It's a story about what it feels like to be human in some of the biggest moments of life and the smallest moments of life. It's a story about the very real things that happen to very real people that are recorded in our Bibles. 
It's a story about what happens when tragedy strikes, not just out there, but in here, and not just in here, but in here. And it's a story about what we believe God is doing in all of it. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 12, which begins this way. Now the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Uh, So I will pause there for just a hot second because there's a lot happening in these two verses, a ton happening in these two verses. Most of our story happens in these two verses. So the people are on their way to something. What, What are they on their way to? A festival. Which festival? Passover, yeah. A lot of John's gospel takes place around festivals and feasts, and Passover is one of those festivals that he marks on a regular basis. Uh, Passover is the spring festival that is at the heart of Jewish life, um, still is at the heart of Jewish life. Uh, It is a pilgrimage festival, meaning that people travel from all over Jerusalem, the countryside, to this festival, Uh, but also not just in the city. It's not just people in West Michigan who travel over to maybe the denominational building. It's people from all over the ancient world, they travel to Jerusalem to mark this festival. And Passover is the celebration of the time when God rescued his people quite miraculously from slavery in Egypt. For hundreds of years, the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites until God sends his messenger, Moses, with a single message, stop. Single message, he tells Pharaoh to stop, but Pharaoh doesn't stop. He doubles down, Uh, he doubles their workload, his overseers become even more harsh to God's people. And so the cycle kind of continues, something like nine times, God sends Moses to Pharaoh, telling Pharaoh to stop. Pharaoh doubles down, God sends Moses to Pharaoh, Pharaoh doubles down. Um, He does it over and over again. This happens something like nine times before God's final and decisive 10th intervention to deliver his people. And the Passover festival is when God's people mark the story of how God rescued his people from Pharaoh and the brutality and the tyranny of the Egyptian empire. And now people are traveling to Jerusalem. They are on their way to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. And the story of God's dramatic glorious, majestic intervention in their lives is playing in their heads and is playing in their hearts as they make their way to Jerusalem, as they set up camp in Jerusalem. This story is playing in their heads and then they hear that there's this guy named Jesus coming to town and they hear that he's coming to town and they actually go out to meet him with palm branches in their hands and they're shouting to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, or Hoshana in the Hebrew, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Now, because we've heard this story several times, some of us have heard this story several million times, uh, we actually miss just how odd this moment is. Um, It's actually, it's very odd, and you should question this moment, because waving palm branches during Passover is a little bit like setting off fireworks um, and waving an American flag at Christmas. Like, like it's like like your, your uncle shows up to Christmas dinner, and he's in like a full American flag suit, and you're like... Patriotic, not frowned upon, but a little bit out of place. Just a little bit, (laughs) a little bit out of place. Uh, So it's the wrong holiday. It's out of place because it's the wrong holiday. And so why are they waving palm branches during the wrong holiday? Well, 
Years and years ago, there were these people called the Maccabees. Uh, in fact, I actually have an image on the screen. So, full disclosure, a couple, go up two to three slides there. Uh, so, a couple weeks ago, I uh, talked about... <laughs> I talked about friends, and I talked about the Maccabees, and someone comes up to me after the service, and he goes, you missed your chance. I'm disappointed. You didn't talk about the holiday armadillo. So here we go. Years and years ago, there were these people called the Maccabees. You can thank Tom Hoekstra or blame him, whichever you prefer, for that. So, <laughs> uh, so the Maccabees were essentially this royal dynasty that sat over um, God's people for something like 100 years, uh, really close to the time of Jesus, about 150-ish years before the time of Jesus. Um, the Maccabees were led by the patriarch uh, Mattathias. Uh, Mattathias is the father, Judas Maccabeus, Judah the hammer, that's the one that we hear most about. Uh, he takes over after his dad passes away. Uh, these are military heroes in the eyes of God's people. Uh, and the reason they're military heroes is because there's this point where God's people are under the rule of another nation, uh, the Seleucids. They are the Syrians that Alexander the Great entrusted part of his empire to um, just before he, he died. And so the Seleucids are ruling over Israel, um, and they are brutal. In fact, um, the leader, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, which sounds exactly, it means exactly what it sounds like. He thinks of himself as God. Uh, he decides that in an effort to unite his empire, that he has to unite their religions. And in order to do that, he has to wage war on Judaism. You can't have the Torah um, in a united empire, you can't have people circumcising people as this covenant with their God. You can't have people um, sacrificing to this one God. You can't have people, and um, you can't have people celebrating their festivals. And so, not only does he forbid the practice of Judaism. He also tries to force them into idolatry um, under threat of death. And this goes on for years, for two to three years. I mean, he persecutes the Jews relentlessly, um, striking down people in the streets, threatening, um, threatening them with death if they don't submit to idolatry, until he does this, this final act, um, this infamous act of sacrificing a pig to Zeus on the altar in the temple, which is literally all of the things, all of the things pulled together into one act. And so one night, one night, um, this guy, Mattathias, the Hasmonean, has had enough. One night, there's a Jewish priest um, who is cooperating at this point with what um, Antiochus wants. There's a Jewish priest who's sacrificing to foreign gods in the temple in Jerusalem, um, and one of Antiochus' soldiers is standing right next to him, and Mattathias storms the temple and, like, takes both of them out. Um, and then it begins what ends up being several years of fighting. Uh, the family, the entire family, all of the Maccabees flee into the wilderness. And I'm not kidding, it's kind of like a movie. All of these people, all these people follow them out there and basically say, we will fight with you. We're tired of this too, we will fight with you. So all of these people become this army that eventually actually does a really great job. They push back the Seleucids, and they continue to fight against the Seleucids. They basically fight their way out of the wilderness and all the way back to the temple. All the way back to the temple. They finally make it to the temple. And you can imagine as they're fighting, um, as they're like figuring out which strategy is going to get them to the temple, you can imagine all of the, the hope and the expectation welling up within them as they're thinking about the moment when they get to lay their eyes on the place where all of this started, when they get to lay their eyes on the temple that was dedicated to their God. And then they finally get to the temple, 
and their hearts literally break. The story is recorded in 1 Maccabees. It says, so all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion, and then they saw the sanctuary, and it was desolate. The altar profaned, the gates burned, and the, in the courts they saw bushes sprung up as in a thicket or as in one of the, one of the mountains. They, they saw also the chambers of the priests in ruins, and then they, they tore their clothes and they mourned with great lamentation. A tearing of the clothes is the symbol of mourning um, and grief, um, extreme grief and contrition. They mourned with great lamentation. They sprinkled themselves with ashes and fell face down on the ground. Uh, And then when the signal was given with the trumpets, they cried out to heaven. They literally cry out to God at the state of their temple, at the state of their temple that is not only abandoned, but desecrated and damaged um, and completely, completely um, desolate. They lament and they cry out to God. And then Judas gets this bright idea. He decides that he's gonna send some of the men over to continue fighting against the Seleucids while they then set out to basically restore and repair the sanctuary. Um, and so they do kind of both of these. And this is pretty much the work of, this, of, of, of the Maccabees. They restore the temple. Um, they clean up the temple. They, they remove the broken altar. They build a new altar. I mean, they literally, it's like a construction project going on in the temple. Uh, so Judas Maccabeus recovers the temple and cleanses it of all the pagan influences. But they don't stop at the temple they actually keep going. Throughout the city, they are purging the entire city of pagan influences. So literally, they take back their temple, and then they take back the city of David. And then they party. They party. For eight days, they celebrate their victory over the Seleucids. They celebrate the fact that they were able to recover their temple and recover the city of David. They celebrate for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the festival of booze, which is also eight days. Um, and then and then they celebrate not only that, but because literally just a year before, they were wandering in the hills. They were wandering in the, wild, in the wilderness and on the mountainsides eating food from the ground like wild animals, the text says. And so therefore, carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of what? Palm. Fronds of palm. They offer thanksgiving to God who had given them success to the purifying of his own holy place. They sing they rejoice, they wave palm branches, and, and they hail their new leaders, the Maccabees, uh, who remain the new leaders of Israel for something like 100 years. They hail their new leaders who stood up to the bullies and won. Someone stood up to the bullies and they actually won, and the palm branch becomes the symbol of their victory over the bullies. And then they decree by edict that this party, this eight-day party, have you ever been in a party that's so great that you're like, we should do this all the time? That's what they do. They're like, we should do this party all the time. Every year, we should celebrate this party exactly like this. And that celebration, that festival, that party is known as Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, God's people mark the story of how God rescued them from their idolatrous and brutal enemies who tried to force them to abandon right worship of Yahweh. It almost sounds like a movie that you've seen, right? (laughs) Like the the dramatic victory, the dramatic rescue, standing up to the bullies and winning. It almost sounds like a movie. And in fact, it has. It sounds like a lot of movies that I've watched um, in my own life. Um, Years ago, my dad um, asked me to watch this movie with him. 
And then he starts the movie, and then he goes to run errands, and it was, I felt like a five-year-old, like I was being entertained by a movie, which says a lot about how mature my parents think I am, but, um, but the movie that I was watching was um, Olympus Has Fallen, and my dad swore it was like one of the best things ever, and I secretly came to love it. How many of you have actually seen Olympus Has Fallen? Okay, a handful of you. Thank you for admitting that you've seen it. Uh, <laughs> so Gerard Butler is the star of the movie. Uh, you can go back to the previous slide. Aaron Eckhart, who is Two-Face in uh, The Dark Knight, is the president of the United States. Yep, sweet gig. Uh, Morgan Freeman, who's usually God in a movie, is actually the vice president in this movie, so kind of close. Uh, <laughs> so essentially the movie opens with like this friendly day at the White House. Friendly day at the White House, and uh, something, as you might suspect in any Gerard Butler movie, something goes awry. Uh, something goes awry, and terrorists literally launch a guerrilla-style attack on the White House, um, seamlessly, I mean, taking down the White House in a matter of like five minutes, like you're watching it and your like, heart's racing as you're seeing this happen. Um, they infiltrate the White House, they capture the President of the United States and a bunch of other people. Uh, and then there's this moment when they climb to the top of the White House. I mean, it's so dramatic. Like they climb to the top of the White House. I mean, but, um, sorry, there are small people here. So they climb to the top of the White House. There are these, this, like the American flag is up there tattered to pieces by bullets, and they grab the flag, and they toss it onto the, White House lawn, onto the White House lawn. And you're sitting there watching this going, somebody has to get those guys, which is the plot of all of the Has Fallen movies. Someone has to get those guys. Um, so admittedly, I, um, I started watching the movie, and I'm like, okay, Dad, what is this? And then eventually, I came to love the movie because it was one that we watched on a regular basis. And then eventually I loved it so much that I begged the guy I was dating to take me to see the sequel, and he's like a college professor, and at one point I look over at him while watching London Has Fallen, and he's horrified, and I can't tell if he's horrified by the movie or the fact that I wanted to see it, or like maybe both. <laughs> Didn't work out. So anyway, this is... <laughs> It's a great way to weed out a guy. Either talk about sit on a date or apparently go see a Gerard Butler movie. So... Uh, <laughs> so Throughout a movie like this, as it's playing out, it's meant to capture your emotions. It's meant to tap into something in you that gets really mad about injustice, gets really mad about people. Um, and not just injustice, but like there are certain things that, are, that matter to us, certain things that are precious to us. Um, we're Protestants, and so the way that we are with like physical buildings is just a little bit different than the ancient world. Uh, but for us, some of those places that are almost sacred might be like the White House. And so Think about the way that you might feel watching someone toss the American flag off of the White House onto the lawn. Um, that's how God's people feel. That's how God's people feel when someone is desecrating their temple, when someone is destroying the place where they offer sacrifices to the God of the entire world. And so you're thinking, as they're thinking, someone has to get those guys. And that guy is, in their case, not Gerard Butler, but Judah the Maccabee, Judah, Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus is the Gerard Butler of the ancient world of God's people. And he would rule for, his family would rule for something like 100 years until the Romans conquered Judea in 63 BC. So imagine this, for 100 years they maintain independence, for 100 years they fight against the Seleucids, for 100 years they actually manage to push their borders back to the time of David and Solomon. Like that's a really big deal for a rogue army that becomes the military of a nation. Um, really, really big deal, only for the Romans to basically take 
the city in 63 BC, and they take the city, and this breaks the heart of the people. Uh, There's a a book called The Psalms of Solomon. Uh, It's not The Song of Solomon, very different book. Psalms of Solomon are essentially a bunch of psalms lamenting the Romans taking the city of Jerusalem. And it literally opens, I'm not kidding, the first line um, in the psalm is, um, I remember the sound of the trumpets alerting us to flee for our lives. Like, it's devastating for God's people when this happens. And so once again, they find themselves under the rule of another nation. And then a few decades later, this guy shows up. This guy shows up out of nowhere. And um, Literally a few days, decades later, he's, he's teaching people on the mountainside like Moses. Um, he's, he's making bread that can feed thousands of people like Moses. He's, he's healing people like Elisha. Like he actually raises someone from the dead like Elijah. Um, he is even cleansing the temple. He is first, one of his first signs is cleansing the temple like who? Judas Maccabeus. He cleanses the temple And so people are thinking, this must be the Messiah that God is sending. This is our Gerard Butler. This is happening, people. This moment is finally coming. This is the person who's going to rescue us from our oppressors, who's going to rescue us from the Romans. And as people do in small towns, they talk. And so all of the people who are there for all of his miracles, they begin to talk. And all the people who are coming into Jerusalem for the Passover festival, they start to hear the news of this Jesus character and all the things that he's doing and all the signs and the miracles that he's performing. And they begin to wonder what could be next, what could be happening right now for Jerusalem. Their liberation is what they assume. And so they go out to meet him. Not only because they're greeting him as someone, a fellow traveler coming for the Passover, but they go to greet him with palm branches and they, they wave the palm branches as he's coming into the city and they begin to shout over him, Hoshana, which means literally save us now in the Hebrew. Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They shout over him. People shout the words to the psalm that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem for Passover, that they would sing in the temple, that the choir would sing over them in the temple every morning during the Passover festival. Uh, these words from Psalm 118, uh, Lord, save us. Lord, save us, they would sing. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the of the altar. Beautiful psalm. But do you notice what's different? Do you notice what's different between the psalm that was sung over them in the temple that they would sing on their way up and then the words that they sing over Jesus? They add a line. They add a line, and the line is, blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king of Israel. They add this line, blessed is the king of Israel. I was reading a commentary from um, Thomas Aquinas, who is probably almost a thousand years before our time, and I'm like, it's probably not going to be anything useful in this commentary that's going to help me with a sermon for two weeks from now. <laughs> and then I, I like locked in on this like little nugget because he says that this is the point where the people erred, like because they actually assumed that Jesus, the King of, like the one through whom everything and the one for whom everything was made, is merely their earthly king. He's just your earthly king. Blessed is not the king of the world, not the creator of the cosmos, not the one for whom and through whom all things are made, but blessed is the king 
of Israel. Blessed is the king over the things that I face and deal with exclusively. Blessed is the king of my priorities. Blessed is the king of my wants. And, and more importantly, what's happening within this text and, and that kind of cascades out from this moment, blessed is the king who will do what all earthly kings do, annihilate our enemies, get rid of the people that we don't like, get rid of the people who maybe we don't even like because they've done bad things that they should be held accountable for. But Lord, this is the moment, this is the king who actually takes care of all of the bad guys. Because that's what an earthly king does. An earthly king was designed to annihilate the enemies of the people. And we have nothing but history to remind us of that. An earthly king, that's what the ruler of Rome did. That's what the ruler of the Seleucids did. Uh, That's what the ruler of the Ptolemies did. The ruler of the Greeks did. The Persians before them. The Babylonians before them. The Assyrians before them. The Egyptians before them. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. The strategy is always the same. Annihilate your enemies before they annihilate you. Subjugate your enemies before they subjugate you. Make them pay tribute and pay taxes to your nation so that you can build wealth before they subjugate you and make you pay tribute to them. That's the game that the empires are forced to play. And now, God's people just hailed Jesus, the Christ, as their earthly king, as the king of Israel who comes to smite their enemies. And it stands to reason that they have pretty low expectations of him. In fact, recently I was reading a document called the War Scroll. Uh, Now, the War Scroll was one of several documents that was found um, in the 19, like toward the end of the 1940s um, at Qumran. We've talked about Qumran. This is the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, It's Qumran is like a community that was right on, um, right on the edge of the Dead Sea. Um, And there, I mean, tons of like, I mean, essentially every book of our scriptures, except for Esther, were found at the Dead Sea um, in these caves, and like some of them were found like in, um, like, what are these, vases, vases, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what that, vases, uh, some of them were just kind of found on the ground, and so they were kind of tattered, and you get little fragments because they're literally covered in like bird and, and bat poo, but, um, but some of the documents held up over time, and we were able, actually able to read a ton of information from around that time that kind of helps us to get a better sense of the mindset, like what is happening in the brains, the minds, the hearts of the people of God as Jesus, and as Jesus is coming into like physical, physical history with him. And so one of those documents is um, called the War Scroll, um, for short, longer version of the title is The War of the Sons of Light Against the Sons of Darkness. Um, So really interesting text. It's kind of like apocalyptic literature. So think like Revelation on steroids. It's kind of like that. Uh, But it's also a little bit more like a fantasy. Like this is kind of the, I mean, as you read through it, you realize it's kind of like the, the thing that a person who's been bullied um, writes. It's like the fantasy that you write about how you're going to take down the bully. Um, that's how it reads. Uh, and so admittedly, I'm kind of reading this, um, this scroll, and there's some, there's some interesting nuggets. For instance, because of the time it was written, uh, we now realize that when they refer to Kittim, um, they are actually referring to Rome, uh, that this is actually being written and, and discussed and shared during the time of the Roman um, occupation. And um, you probably changed the name because you don't want the people who have occupied your nation to know that you're talking about, you know, getting rid of them. So, so you changed the name. So there's these little interesting nuggets like that. But admittedly, it's a very long 
text that reads exactly like Revelation. I mean, like battle formations for days, um, trumpets and descriptions for days, like banner descriptions for days. And so I, I am kind of admittedly dozing off as I'm reading this document. I'm drinking espresso, listening to music, trying to read this, and like falling asleep. Uh, it's, it's not going great. But then as my eyes are glazing over, something catches my eye. <clears throat> And I find it kind of peculiar because it's listed as the prayer that the chief priest was supposed to pray as they were heading into battle. This is like a 40-year-long battle that is being described in this text. Um, there's seven, there's, sorry, 40-year war, seven battles. Um, God's people win three of them. The enemy wins three of them. And then there's the seventh like the decisive battle where God gets rid of, annihilates, completely gets rid of and the enemy once and for all. And so just before that final battle, uh, there is this prayer that the chief priest is supposed to pray. Um, and, and when you read it, you realize that it doesn't sound like the prayer that you, um, you would expect a pastor or a priest to pray. I mean, it sounds like the kind of prayer that you pray like when you're really mad at someone. Like you kind of slip in some things that you probably shouldn't pray over people, even your enemies. Uh, and so one of the, I pulled out a little tiny snippet of it. Um, not the whole thing because it's like a page and a half, but um, it begins this way. At the hand of the oppressed whom you have redeemed with power and by retribution, a wondrous strength, a heart that melts before us shall be as a door of hope. You will do to them as you did to Pharaoh and the officers of his chariots in the Red Sea. You will ignite the humble of spirit like a fiery torch put to the sheath, consuming the wicked. You shall not turn back until the annihilation of the guilty. In times past, Lord, you foretold the appointed time for your hands' powerful work against the Kittim. Read Rome. Rejoice, all you cities of Judah. Open your gates forever that the wealth of the nations by tribute might be brought to you and their kings might serve you. And all those who oppressed you shall bow down to you and the dust of your feet they shall lick. Starts off as a little bit of a fantasy, but then... The story gets retold pretty often. It gets repeated pretty often. It begins to shape the imagination, begins to shape the imagination of the people, and then it becomes a hope. It becomes a hope of the people that God would finally show up in this one decisive battle against their enemies. And this hope is given a fresh wind when this guy shows up teaching people like Moses, healing people like Elijah, and cleansing the temple, cleansing the temple like Judas Maccabeus. He's the Messiah, they conclude. He's the one who will lead the final battle to annihilate the nations that have oppressed us. After all, that is how an earthly king uses power. That is how an earthly ruler subdues enemies. That is how an earthly ruler establishes a kingdom. That is how an earthly ruler builds the nation's wealth. So they take palm branches and they go out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And then John tells us that it's in this moment that Jesus finds a donkey to sit on. That it's to fulfill, and that it's to fulfill the words of the prophet Zechariah. Uh, we do a little digging and we realize uh, these are the words of Zechariah. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming to you seated on a donkey's cult. Now, Zechariah was a prophet who prophesied as God's people were coming, some of them coming back to the land of Israel, and those people were coming back with an expectation in their heart, and the expectation was what Jeremiah prophesied years before that, 70 years before that, that God's people would be released from captivity after seven years, and they would come back to a restored kingdom, they'd come back to a restored temple, and the Messiah would lead them into, into peace and dominion over all of the earth, and that is what they're coming back to, to 
with their expectation. And yet when they get there, they find that the entire land is a complete and utter set of ruins. And they're disappointed. They're dismayed. They're hopeless. And Zechariah is the prophet who prophesies into that disappointment. And he says to them, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah prophesies the coming of a Messiah. But the Messiah is a humble king riding in on a donkey. Now, notice the imagery here. A donkey is not a majestic animal. It's kind of clunky and uncoordinated. Um, it's, 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 it's not the kind of animal that, that sends the message of like prowess and strength. Um, it's not regal. It's not stately. Um, a king would ride in on a war horse, or, or better yet, drawn by a chariot, drawn by a chariot uh, to project, um, to send the message that they were a strong leader, to send the message that they could protect the kingdom, and also to send the message that they would and could annihilate anyone, anyone who did not bow down to them. But Israel's king, Israel's Messiah, comes riding on a donkey, a symbol of peace and humility and gentleness and compassion, signaling that he will use his power and strength to heal and transform and restore. Not just Israel, but all of the nations. In fact, Zechariah continues, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he, this Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule, somehow, without the instruments of war, his rule will somehow extend from sea to sea and from, river, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Your king comes to you in peace and gentleness. And rather than ramping up the war with the Romans or the latest empire to occupy the land, rather than ramping up the war, he destroys the war horses and the chariots and the battle bows. And in doing so, he signals the beginning of the peaceable kingdom, the one that will extend somehow miraculously through God's intervention alone to the ends of the earth, including the very people that they count as their enemies and our own today. This is an astonishing, astonishing prophecy in Zechariah. It's astonishing that John includes it in this moment. And it's astonishing because it actually turns out to be true. Um, there's this moment um, in Luke. So in Luke's account of this story, he actually includes a, a, a snippet that doesn't get included in any of the others. Um, it certainly doesn't get included in John, but I think it's relevant here. Um, Luke says that when Jesus enters into the city and he hears the people shouting, Hoshana, save us now over him, then he sees the palm branches being waved. As he makes his way into the city, he literally begins to sob. There are two instances in the scriptures where Jesus sobs. Two. The first is when he heals Lazarus literally just a couple of days before our text in John. And the second is when he comes into a city to the announcement that he is the earthly king of Israel. He sobs. Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. The story of Palm Sunday is the story of God's people having their prayers answered, but missing it because it didn't show up the way they expected it to. Or maybe because it didn't show up the way they wanted it to. 
They got stuck on what it was supposed to look like, total destruction of other people. They got stuck on what it, was, it used to look like, maybe a Davidic monarchy, um, taking tribute from other nations to build their own wealth. And as a result, they missed the very salvation that they were cheering for exuberantly as Jesus entered the city. Now, perhaps you are not a nation fighting for independence. I'm guessing your prayers are a little simpler, a little less complex than the prayers of God's people in the first century. But I would also guess that you're still quite familiar with having hopes and expectations and um, praying real prayers for things that really matter to you. I know I am. Prayers for things like promotions or, or life-giving careers more generally or, or marriages or your child's success or your own success as a student growing up or, or getting into your top school or maybe even your own health. The list is endless. We all have those things. This is a very human thing to have hopes and expectations and dreams and wants. Jesus does not dismiss those hopes and expectations. The first time Jesus weeps, over the death of his friend Lazarus shows us that Jesus doesn't dismiss those aches in our hearts, those longings in our hearts. He weeps with us in those. He steps into those. He steps into the ache, literally knowing full well that he's about to raise Lazarus back to life, that he's going to restore life. Jesus still is brokenhearted for the brokenness and the evil and the destruction that people encounter. He aches for it and he weeps for it and he weeps with us in it. So Jesus is never dismissing our expectations. He's never dismissing our hopes. He's never dismissing our prayers. And yet, and yet he does invite us, and I think Palm Sunday really just puts it in like, like stark view. He does invite us to think about the way we go about those things, to think about the way that we pursue those things, because the way that we pursue those things might be products of the broken kingdom that we come from rather than the, the, the righteous kingdom that he brings for instance, a great life-giving career is always a good thing, but maybe not stepping on other people and certainly not destroying other people to get to the C-suite. A great relationship with the person that you'll eventually marry is always a great thing, but maybe not to the point of compromising to secure or keep said relationship. A financially sustainable life for you and your family is always a good thing, but maybe not unethical business practices that defraud or dehumanize your employees or customers. Your child's success is always a good thing, but maybe not threatening the coach who won't put her in the game, or bribing, true story from a couple of years ago that all of you saw in the media, bribing the admissions officer at the school that she or he is applying to. The story of the triumphal entry reminds us to pursue the right things in the right way. The Christian tradition on sin, the way that the church has talked about sin, is, has always kind of held out this nuance between the good that we want and the destructive means by which we pursue those things. It's the reason why we can kind of veer off the path when we're going after a really good thing. The church has always known this, wisely has known this, and has wisely taught this to us, that what Jesus is inviting us to do is to pursue the right thing, to pursue the good, to pursue the truth, to, to pursue beauty, but in the right way. In the right way. And to do that, Jesus says, we have to put down the war horses and the chariots and the battle bows. Now, hear me very carefully as I say that. What Jesus is saying, what the text is saying, um, as we live in this really complicated world in which all the things happen all the time, what Jesus is saying is we have to put down the tactics 
of a broken kingdom. And the reason that we, as God's people, put down the tactics of a broken kingdom is because we are signposts of God's kingdom. We are the people who are supposed to alert people to the fact that there's a different way to live, there's a different way to pursue the good, there's a different way to go after the things that matter. We are supposed to be the people who alert people to the reign of God that is already through us and will be completed at his return. And that is a really vulnerable thing. A really vulnerable thing, about as vulnerable as taking away your war horses and chariots and battle bows in the middle of a war-torn nation that sits between highly militarized nations that are always fighting over it, through it, and against it. Unbelievably vulnerable. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point. Because that is where the growth into the image of Christ takes shape. Not when the pressure's off and everything's fine and and everything's peaceful, but precisely in the moments that feel like the crucible of life, in the moments that are the hardest moments to make the right decision, the hardest moment to do the right thing in the right way. And yet, if we are to be the kind of people who call ourselves disciples and followers of that king, if we are to be the kinds of people who are shaped into, into the image of that king, if we are to be the kind of people who model what it looks like to follow after that king, then that is precisely what we are called to do. Not with the frantic angst and domination strategies and annihilation tactics of the earthly kingdom, but with the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the And even when anger is warranted, the self-control, the self-control of God's kingdom. This is the kingdom that our king goes to the cross for. This is the kingdom that our king dies for. This is the kingdom that is bigger than all the other earthly kingdoms. It's the kingdom that's bigger than our perceptions of who's in and who's out. It's bigger than our fantasies of crushing our enemies. And it's bigger than even our expectations of what God is able to do in even the most tragic the most tragic events that rip through our lives and our communities. And it's not just bigger. It's not just bigger. If history is any indication, like Jesus' prophetic words um, in Luke 19 as he weeps over the city, um, it's, not just, it's not just bigger, it's better. It's better. Because the tactics of the earthly kingdom leads, lead God's people right into the complete destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, Qumran, in 70 AD, literally just a couple of decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's people just keep at, keep at the destructive pattern, and it destroys them. It destroys them. And when you look at the carnage of 70 AD, when you look at that, I mean, Qumran, I think, is at 68 AD. When you look at the destruction that happens over the land and to the people, they literally have to flee to the hills to get away from the Romans. When you see that, you're kind of left. I mean, history literally just teaches us that God's way really was better. It really was more transformative. It really was more restorative than anything that we would have come up with on our own. And on Palm Sunday, that is what we hold in our hearts, and that is the truth that we allow to transform us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are are the king who steps into the aches of our hearts and the longings of our lives. But Lord, we also thank you that you are the king of all of creation who is bigger than all of those things. We thank you that you did not allow us to settle for the sin and the brokenness and the death that wreaks havoc on creation and us, and that you are setting out to restore 
And even though we don't always understand your strategies for restoration, even though we don't understand how our lives always play into it, Lord, we are so immensely grateful that you settle for nothing less than the full peace, the full shalom of all of creation in relationship with you and one another. And so, Lord, make us instruments of your restoration, your healing, your transformation, rather than instruments of vengeance and death. Help us to be the kinds of people who alert the path to something different, something truly majestic, something truly worth hailing you over and praising you for. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we lift up all the things that we pray for, all the things that are, um, some of the things that we just don't even have words for because they're just so painful that we can't, even, we can't even talk about them to other people, but that you know about the things that are, as Paul says, are in our hearts as groanings, Lord, without words. We lift up all those things to you and we thank you for the way that you are already stepping into them, even if we don't see it. And we thank you for the way that over the course of this week, as we mark Holy Week, that you show us exactly your answer, your answer to sin and death and evil and brokenness. It's a decisive no to all of those things and a yes to life and life and abundance, to peace and peace and abundance and to joy and delight in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.